Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. My name is Michael Falk, and I'll be hosting this episode, and I'm joined by Abby of Midwest Performance Nutrition. This has honestly been one of my favorite podcasts that I've recorded recently, as I learned a ton going through this, so I'm sure that you are going to learn a ton by listening. Abby and I talk about performance nutrition, tips around fueling for practice and competition, what red S syndrome is, and why it is so important to be identified early in athletes, how to fuel for injured athletes, especially if you're an athlete going through ACL recovery, and so much more. This is a great episode, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it and learn a lot. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. My name is Michael Falk, and I'll be hosting this episode. Today, I'm joined by Abby of Midwest Performance Nutrition. Abby is a registered dietitian that specializes in working with athletes to help them have a healthy relationship with food and fuel their performance goals. In addition to her training as a dietitian, Abby has a history as an athlete competing in cross-country and track and field all the way through the collegiate level. So, Abby, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to come on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this will be fun. Uh, a well-timed episode to do some nutrition stuff in, in January. I know it's on everyone's mind, usually in the start of the new year. And um, we were just talking before we started recording with the upcoming indoor track season, et cetera. So this will be great. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited. All right. So I always like to start with just a little bit of background, um, kind of tell our listeners how you got into the sports nutrition world. All right. So like Michael said, I competed in cross country throughout middle and high school and track through middle school, high school, and then continued as a sprinter at the collegiate level. And so when I was a senior in high school, a dietitian came to talk to our track team just to give a presentation about nutrition for sport. And at the time I didn't, I would had committed to the university I was going to run at, but I didn't really know what I wanted to study. And so then I found out, oh wait, you can make nutrition a career. And so I, after that day, I was like, I want to study dietetics in college. And so that's what started me on this path. And then when I was in college, I remember one day Googling track and field nutrition, and I found a handout put out by the Collegiate and Professional Sports Dietitians Association. And just reading that made me realize, okay, I know I want to be a dietitian, but now I really know that I want to focus in on the sports and performance nutrition. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's perfect. And um, I think it's something that we always like to, you know, working with other people or talking to people that, I mean, you can learn things in a book, but it's different when you've actually learned it in a book, you have the science, but you can actually relate to the athletes and what they're going to. Yeah. hundred percent. So, so you kind of mentioned, um, there, this idea of performance nutrition. So, um, can you kind of just explain what, what that means to you or, or how you explain the world of performance nutrition? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if you define it straight up, performance nutrition is just using nutrition to maximize your training, competition, and recovery as an athlete or an active person. And so I personally, I practice sports nutrition from a non-diet approach. So when I work with an athlete, I kind of follow what I call the four F's. So first, like you need to be fueled. So you need to meet your energy and your nutrient needs for sport and life. But you also need to make sure your nutrition is flexible, fun, and fulfilling. So I think in sports and athletics, a lot of times we get caught up in this idea that like, you know, your body is a machine. You need to put fuel into the machine. But also, you know, as humans, we're so much more than just these working parts. You need 
food is fun. Like over Christmas, we don't eat Christmas cookies because they're the ultimate performance fuel. We eat them because they're fun (laughs) and tasty. And you also need to be flexible too. So sometimes athletes are stuck in this idea. I can't ever have any off days as my nutrition. I have to be eating perfectly, but part of eating is also being flexible and making sure that you can enjoy stuff just outside of, is this going to be beneficial for my performance? Yeah. No, I think that's, um, I think that's great. And I think it's funny listening to you and just, um, talking to, talking to other people in the nutrition world, they're just other practitioners. Cause I agree with you a hundred percent. We run into these athletes that have those like very fixed mindsets and kind of this unhealthy relationship with food. But like, I work with like a lot of high school, uh, baseball playing boys and, you know, they can't name one vegetable that they've eaten in the last like year <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. where, where we, we, we see these people on these, um, these different, um, different spectrums and, and, uh, there's, it's just such a fascinating space with, um, kind of meeting people where they're, where they're at. Mm-hmm. And definitely, it even depends on the sport too, because I mean, me coming from the running world where a lot of the issues I see are going to be way different than the baseball world versus the swimming world versus like the lacrosse world, all of these different sports and even across genders age have all these different nutrition needs. Yeah. No, I think that's, um, that's perfect. So what are some things when you're working with an athlete, um, that athletes have to consider about their nutrition and their nutrition habits that maybe just a general everyday person might not have to worry about? Yeah. So like first in general athletes, it's just more of everything you need more energy. So I eat calories, you need more nutrients, you need more carbs, more fat, more protein, and you need more fluid overall because of the amount of training that you're doing. You're exerting that much more energy. You're trying to get that much more out of your body and you're losing that much more fluid. So it's really important for you to get that much. So speaking on that fluid, so when you think of the general nutrition recommendations for the population, it's usually told to limit sodium because in general, the general population limiting sodium can help them lower your risk for heart disease, lower high blood pressure. So the sodium recommendations for the general population is to eat less than 2,300 milligrams per day. However, an athlete might lose that much sodium in one practice or one game, especially thinking like a marathon in hot and humid weather or football player wearing all your pads and it's hell week in August and you are sweating your butt off. So instead of doing this low sodium, if they were to do that, they would be at risk for serious illness. So it's like, you have to think about, okay, what does this person need? Yeah, no, that's a really good kind of point is just uh, a way of thinking about it. And I've never heard somebody say it that way, but like working backwards from like the, the demands, you know, and, and uh, kind of figuring it out from, from there. Oh, definitely. So we've kind of hit on it just a little bit, but um, I know um, we could probably do a whole podcast just on nutrition myths, but um, <laughs> but what are some, uh, it's really one of the reasons that my wife and I started this podcast was even just in our field, sports medicine and, and performance, we see just so many myths that are not true, like old wives tales that have been passed down that, you know, my uncle said that this is what he did back in the day and that's what I'm going to do. Um, so what are some common myths and misconceptions that you see around sports nutrition that you deal with people kind of debunking frequently? Oh yeah. So on a top one that I see probably it's like eating as healthy as possible. Like I mentioned before. So 
of course, we know things like, you know, fruits and vegetables and getting a lot of protein. Those are important things. You know, you get your antioxidants and vitamins and minerals and your fiber from fruits and veggies and protein. We need it to build our muscles, like recover from injury, all of that stuff. However, a lot of athletes hear that information and then they run with it and be like, all right, I'm going to eat tons of fruits and veggies. I'm going to eat tons of protein. And so sometimes they can take that too far. So protein is a very filling nutrient and then fruits and veggies are also high in fiber. They're very filling. So if someone's filling up on all of that and they feel so full, but they're not getting the carbs and the fat they need for energy, that healthy diet is actually going to be detrimental to them because they're going to hurt their performance by not getting enough energy. So this can lead to a lot of issues later on if we kind of go too far down the quote healthy eating spectrum. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And it's just, you know, this idea of healthy eating is just, I, I hate things that we can't, um, uh, define easily, you know, yes. like in, in my, in our world, I hear people say all the time, like, Oh, you need to be more stable. It's like, well, can you actually give me a working definition of what that, like what yes. that term means? And, and when you ask that question, people are like, well, I, I don't really know. And I, I feel like in the nutrition world, that's kind of what this like healthy, like thing is it's like you know all food could be healthy and and depending what your demands are and how often you eat it and etc and what's nutritious for one person may be like harmful to another like i would not tell a person with celiac disease to carb load on bagels before their marathon <laughs> because that's just going to be real dangerous yeah yeah that's going to be a miserable miserable race for them yeah, but kind of like circling into that. So in the, I'm I'm in the running world. So there's a lot of talk about like, you know, low carb right now is the way to go. Um, there's talk of like people tell you to do fasted runs for training because the idea is, oh, well, if you go into this run fasted, it's going to train your body to burn that fat that your fat stores rather than relying on carbs. So I actually just read a really recent article published um, by Louise Burke, who's a very like prestigious sports science researcher, dietitian. And in this article, she talked about how the consensus on these low, low carb diets and training on that, actually they're detrimental to performance because our body is like, it's like a gas tank and you put in different types of fuel and our body gets efficient at burning the fuel you put in it. So if you fill it with lots of fat, then it's true. It's going to get better at burning fat because that's what you give it. But that doesn't change the exercise metabolism in our body pathways that are already set up. So we use carbs for high intensity exercise. So training your body to burn fat, if you're going to try and do a high intensity race or exercise is going to come back to bite you because then you're not going to be as efficient at using that carbohydrate. Those receptors to metabolize it are going to be downregulated. So when the time comes, you're not going to be as efficient at using that fuel. Yeah, that is really interesting. Well, it, it ties in exactly to what you're talking about with performance nutrition of like, um, you know, is burning fat for an athlete as your main energy source, like that might not really be desirable. I mean, and so actually by trying to do some of that stuff, you're, you're potentially hindering your performance in this chasing of, oh, I'm doing like changing, shifting my energy metabolism that might not actually help you reach your goals if your goal is to run fast in a race. Definitely. And that's not just for like running. Think of like sports like soccer, basketball, even like baseball, all of those short, intense bursts of activity, those sprints, the hitting, the 
all of that, that's fueled by carbohydrate, that intensity. So like it's necessary for more than just runners. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. At the end of the day, I don't think all athletes realize that it's ATP, which is energy that you through mm-hmm. a complex um, pathway, you get out of your food more or less. And that's actually what fuels your muscles. So you can do all the strength training in the world, but if you don't mm-hmm. have the energy to supply actually firing the muscles and doing the action potentials and, and moving them, then it doesn't really matter how, how quote unquote strong you are if you can't actually use it. Definitely. And like when you speak on energy and strength like that, that brings me to kind of, I'm sure, but all sports dietitians, the number one myth that we would like to put out is that there is no magic supplement that is going to increase your energy or strength before any food. A lot of the times when I work with a high schooler and college athletes, they come to me, they're like, I read that this, this, and this, if I take these, they're going to make my performance better. So what do I need to do? What brand do I need to buy? And I'm like, okay, hold up. You're not, you're not even eating breakfast. Um, so let's start there. Or you are barely eating any carbs throughout the day, or you're only drinking 16 ounces of water. So chugging down that pre-workout is not going to help you as much as you think it will. Yeah. That's a, you couldn't have said it better. We, we get a similar thing with um, what's the best way to recover. And I want to do these compression boots or should I get a sports massage or, you know, fill in the blank of other silly recovery modalities that may potentially help, but it's not going to move the needle. If you aren't sleeping eight hours, if you're drinking enough water, if you're not eating enough foods, if you're not timing your foods, right. Or the things like that. I'm like, these are low hanging fruit that if you're, and I've met very few high school athletes that are taking care of the, the basis that to get, you know, the, the benefit out of those things. Um, I mean, the example I use is like Michael Phelps at the Olympics. Okay. He, yeah, he's doing all of that. He's got his own massage therapist and cupping and the tape and his, you know, everyone talks about like the shakes he was drinking in between his, his events. And, and I'm like, yeah, but he, had, I forget exactly how many calories he's eating in a day in, in his yes. Olympic things, but he had like a detailed nutrition plan that was timed out. And like, when you're doing all that, now you can do these like little side things that might make a percent difference or a half a percent difference. But if he's not doing the basics, none of that would have, would have mattered. Yeah. I I share with all my athletes, this idea of the sports nutrition pyramid. So those of us who like, you know, grew up in the nineties before my plate was a thing, remember the nutrition pyramid. And so a lot of athletes, they want to turn it. If you think of it like a triangle, they want to turn it on the tip. So supplements are the tip of the pyramid. That's the extra little oomph after you've already taken care of the base and the middle, which the base, getting enough energy and fluids, and then the middle, making sure you have the right balance of nutrients, your micronutrients, your before and after practice, for example. So you want to make sure that you're moving up the pyramid rather than turning it over. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a really, really good advice and something that uh, I might, I might just start playing this podcast on a loop in our clinic. It just might be, <laughs> this might, I'm just going to play this little section uh, uh, over and over again, see if we can brainwash, uh, brainwash some people. <laughs> Yeah. Whatever gets it through their minds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. I want to dive into uh, something that's being talked about much more frequently now, at least in, in our world, but probably not enough in the casual conversation amongst parents and athletes, especially, um, really through all levels of sport, but especially at at younger levels of sport, 
something called uh, relative energy deficiency in sport or red S. Um, could you kind of walk people through what that is and, and why it is so important to address that? Yeah. So actually I did my senior undergrad research on red S and I actually got my abstract published. So this is something I am really passionate about. So what red S relative energy deficiency in sport is, is it's this idea that having an energy deficit and not having enough energy to meet your daily metabolic needs and your physical activity needs is going to lead to health consequences and performance issues. And so this idea was kind of coined in 2014 by the International Olympic Committee to sort of move into as a replacement for the female athlete triad. So the female athlete triad kind of already laid the groundwork that having an energy deficit in female athletes was leading to low bone density, leading to issues with their menstrual cycle. But red S can affect both females and males. And it's more than just your menstruation or your bones. It's like everything. Yeah. Um, so what kind of what, since this has come out and since 2014, have you, um, seen shifts of kind of what athletes are, are doing or how we need to better educate athletes? Like what as a kind of performance team, medical team community around these athletes we can do to better support them. And then maybe some things that the athletes themselves have to take some ownership of and, and monitor for this. Oh, yeah. And it's definitely getting more like traction. I've seen articles in Runner's World about it and other places that know. So I think I'll first going to start from the practitioner side. So actually, Rebecca McConville is a sports and eating disorder dietitian who does like red S training. And she has a book, Finding Your Sweet Spot, that has a lot of this info. And she always says that physical therapists and athletic trainers, like y'all are on the front lines because a lot of times a big sign of an athlete with these issues is frequent injuries and bad recovery. So somebody who's actually seeing these injured athletes can be one of the first people who notices it. And so when it comes to red S just being a practitioner, who's aware of the signs. So there are three main types of sports that are at higher risk. So you have weight-based sports. So like wrestling, combat sports, You have sports that are aesthetic based. So trying to get a certain body type like gymnastics and you have endurance sports or sports that emphasize a lean body type like running. So kind of keeping an extra eye on those athletes because they might either intentionally, whether it's through like an eating disorder or unintentionally, like they're just trying to eat healthy and didn't realize they were not eating enough, or maybe they are food insecure and they can't get enough food or they have a super busy schedule and just don't have time. So just kind of keeping an eye out for those special athletes and then coaches like fostering a good coaching environment. That's not toxic. I cannot tell you how many times that the issues that start with red S it comes from the coaches and it comes from the team environment. So do not comment on athlete shapes and sizes or make critiques based on their weight or like test their body composition and make it public. Like I've, I have seen like and heard stories of it all. I've heard of like coaches shaming people by posting the body comps on the wall and shaming specific athletes. I have like coaches telling like, it's just fact that girls run faster if they have less weight. And so of course, what that does to athletes is it encourages them to do these harmful habits. And then it leads to injuries and other issues and also just not promoting overtraining. So don't tell athletes to do all this extra work outside of practice because overtraining as we know is just as harmful as not training enough. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that's been helpful about it. Um, from our standpoint is that, you know, when it was just the female athlete triad or is just focused on like the eating side of it, that's only half the equation. And, 
being able to like look at the total, you know, it's a combination of eating and training together and, and how those two, two things interplay, um, from a screening standpoint, um, cause this is something that even like we, we, um, you know, fortunately or, or unfortunately have had athletes that, um, have had these issues that we've been able to, to catch, but, um, at times not for, for our comfort level, like not soon enough, you know, it's almost been, um, you know, over the long period of time when it's like, something's not right. Like there's not healing and recovering, like we're expecting, but something that we've been really trying to, to push ourselves for, is there a way that we can catch this even sooner, you know, and, and not have to go through a period of like, I just cannot figure out why this is not healing. And then kind of eventually peeling back the layers or other things that whether it's us or, or families or coaches or athletic trainers at schools can be watching for with this. I'm going to say it's a mix of like screening tools and also like evaluations based from your clinical judgment. So they do have the Red S um, clinical assessment tour, the Red S cat. And this is a way that, however, it's used to place athletes where you suspect Red S into like a red light, yellow light, green light category on whether they can return to play. So somebody in the red light would obviously be like, like, no, you need to stop all physical activity. And that would be someone with like an active eating disorder, or if you can tell like cardiac abnormalities, dehydration, that would make their health at risk. But then the hard part is there's not really a validated specific to red S screening tool, but there, um, the way I look at it is using the red S graphic, which if you Google relative energy deficiency in sport graphic, there's like a wheel with energy of deficiency at the center. And then all the different body systems that are affected so sometimes it takes going outside of your general, like, you know, injury or bone density and looking at other aspects of your health. So like if it's a female, like, okay, are you getting your period regularly or gastrointestinal? Have you been constipated lately? Because constipation is a really common side effect. How's your moods? How is like, um, how are you feeling throughout the day? What are your energy levels like? And then referring out to different professionals who can do a thorough eval, like a sports dietitian who can look at nutrition or like a sports psych who can do a mental health eval. So somebody who can help bring together this holistic picture. Yeah, no, that's, um, I think that's really good advice. Um, so I know that kind of, it's something that you referenced that you've had, you know, being a, a college sprinter, you've been around sports that, you know, may or may not encourage some of these things or be contributing to it. I know my wife was the athletic trainer for uh, Louisville's track and field team um, for her master's. So she's got some, some, um, stories and experiences around this as well, but can you kind of share some of your experience of what you saw while you were, a, a college, college runner? So I'll say it started. I remember the youngest I was when I had a teammate with an eating disorder was 12. And then it kind of continued in college. I had heard rumors that previous coaches used to like make everybody take a weekly weight and body comp. And then, show and then like show it to the whole team. I've, I have heard coaches like straight up say, Oh, so-and-so's faster now because she lost weight over the summer. I had countless teammates come up and tell me things like I gained weight from this medication. And so I was only eating 500 calories a day so that I could lose it. Or I, I developed an eating disorder over the summer because I saw what all the other girls on other teams look like. And again, this is me speaking from a female perspective because I am on a female but it's, it's in male athletes too. Like it's eating disorders are not just like, you know, a thin white woman problem. It's everybody's at risk. 
And I, I mean, I had male athletes saying stuff like, yeah, I mean, I got to go low carb. I got to burn this fat, or I need to look like this guy on Instagram. So I'm going to like eat all this protein and not eat anything else and take these dangerous supplements. So it's just, it's a lot. Yeah. And, and the males, it can actually be more dangerous because they don't have as dangerous, if not more dangerous, because they don't have as many like fat reserves, you know, and just from the body type standpoint, it, and it, it gets missed longer, I think. Yes. And I definitely agree. Like it gets missed because they're not the stereotypical type you'd be looking out for. And although males they're, re- they're affected and they're like, um, it's called like hypogonadism where they're not producing enough of their sex hormones. It's not like females where you can see a period can get, Oh, she's not going to period that's visual, but you don't see it in a male, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is something that's been in the news a little bit um, recently as well with um, kind of, can you walk people through what, what happened at Oregon and, and some of the coaches recently that have been like banned and, and things like that? Oh, goodness. There was, so there's a story that came out about like, you know, the University of Oregon, which, you know, is consistently produces top runners, but it was coming out that they were using the DEXA machine, which is to be used as a bone density, like measure, however, by by side effect, it does measure body composition. And they were making these athletes get like three, like an excessive amount of DEXA scans per year and saying, you need to reach X body composition or else like you're going to get prescribed extra training. You need to go see, they said nutritionist. I would hope I am not in like intimately involved in this. So I don't know what kind of professionals were doing this, but I would hope, you know, that a dietitian wouldn't be doing this they're saying you need to go on a diet, you need extra training. And so of course it led to rampant eating disorder, disordered eating because of this emphasis on body composition and body type, when really that is one of many, many variables that affect your performance. And it's different for every single person. Yeah. Um, Well, that's, um, that's good. And hopefully, um, people that are listening to this, if you're not aware of this, this is something that brings, continues to bring this out into the open and it's definitely something that's being talked about more amongst clinicians and people in the sports medicine and performance and nutrition world. But, you know, I, I don't see it yet going down to the high schools, the, you know, the everyday um, athletes. So hopefully this continues to, to spread the word and makes people aware of it so that we can all be watching out for it and, and working with appropriate professionals to help athletes that might be struggling with this and catching it earlier and earlier before you know, even more significant, serious things happen to, to athletes. So. Mm-hmm. Especially at the high school level. Cause if you can catch it young, then it won't like, you know, spiral into the future. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a really key, key, uh, key thing and a key time that we can try to make an impact on athletes going forward, hopefully through the rest of their career, if it's handled appropriately. Mm-hmm. So I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of go through some specific situations that um, some kind of quote unquote specialty nutritional uh, areas and and get your take and guidance there. Um, As a physical therapist, I'm obviously very interested in uh, nutrition for injured athletes. And this is something Mm -hmm. that I see a lot of myths and and misconceptions about. And it's not discussed a lot. We hear a lot of uh, athletes that feel like they need to start eating less because they're not training as much. And and that's a very slippery slope to go down. So I know you've done like some presentations on nutrition during ACL rehab, um, but what advice do you have for, for injured athletes and, and athletes going through a, a post-operative rehab period? 
Oh, a hundred percent. I just, ACL is near and dear to my heart because I had a close teammate who tore theirs our senior year. And so thinking about that recovery is such a big surgery and big recovery is important. I love that you mentioned that people think they need to eat less. It's like, okay, I'm not training, so I don't need to eat as much. Well, studies show that like your energy expenditure could increase as much as 50% because of the internal work in your body that's going to repair this injury. And then also another thing I found, crutching increases your energy expenditure two to three times. So you're using more energy to crutch around if that's what you need to do to get around. So that's something that a lot of people don't even think about. And I had so not you, thought about that one before. I, I give the, I talk to people about the increased energy with healing a lot. That's one that we'll, we'll, you know, bring up. I've never thought about the crutching though. That's a, that's a really interesting, interesting point. Yeah. yeah. I remember when I read that, I was like, holy cow, I didn't even think of it like that. But now I'm like, well, yeah, it makes sense. Cause you have to literally spend so much more time moving around. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, oh no, go ahead. Please carry on. Yeah. And so like not, it's not only just energy, but it's the specific types of nutrients. So I'm sure a lot of us in the performance world know, you know, macronutrients provide energy. Um, We know that protein is important for muscle healing. So when you're immobilized, it's just inevitable that there's going to be some muscle loss. And so some studies have shown that it could be as much as like 400 grams of muscle daily on like the higher ends. So the Gatorade Sports Science Institute recommendations are about 1.6 to 2.5 grams per kilogram of protein daily, which for reference, the reference for like the general population for how much protein you need is 0.8 grams per kilogram. So that's like what you need as a general person to not be malnourished. Somebody who is injured might need up to like triple that in order to prevent that protein loss. And it's not just, you know, eat any kind of protein. So there is an amino acid called leucine that I know a lot of people are aware of that is especially important to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So getting protein sources rich in leucine, like whey protein, meats, fish, those are all, or soy proteins, those are going to be good sources to help get that muscle protein synthesis started. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good um, point. That's interesting. I hadn't heard about the leucine in particular. but it's something that we see with, we do a lot of ACL rehab. And mm-hmm. one of the, one of the things that people don't talk about enough is it's not a single limbed injury. And so mm-hmm. there's really interesting studies that have come out over the last several years that we see a, a gradual decline, decline in strength of their other leg as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's multiple factors for this. People don't push their other leg hard enough during the rehab process. We hold athletes out of things that they should be doing earlier for too long. So definitely could, I could go on and on, but I personally think one of the um, things surrounding it is that the athletes are nutritionally often not taking care of restoring their energy stores. And so Mm -hmm. that they're actually, you know, over the course of nine months, trending down in muscle cross-sectional area, down in strength and, um, you know, then when we go back and test them for return to play, we're no longer comparing good to good. We're comparing surgery to weakened pre-injury limb yeah. status. Um, and so we, we just think that the nutrition piece is and, and everything else, but it's so important to, to that particular injury. Oh, definitely. And there's even like, normally I don't recommend like supplements for a lot of stuff, but for injured athletes, there is some interesting research on some different supplements 
specifically some really common ones like creatine and omega-3s. And all of this, uh, these supplements have been researched and they may help to reduce that muscle protein breakdown and help to reduce that inflammation that's naturally made. Hmm. That's uh, also interesting. Not something that I've heard about. So creatine and what was the other one you said? So like omega-3 fatty acids. So like creatine, a lot of people know of like, it's a supplement that provides energy for short, high intense exercises. So it helps you build muscle through strength training but it may actually be helpful for injury as well. And not just for muscle building to help prevent that breakdown. And then omega-3, it's a type of fat that's naturally an anti-inflammatory. So it also may help to reduce some of that inflammation along with, you know, fruits and veggies and other anti-inflammatory foods to help with that injury. And then have you also, have you heard of the vitamin C collagen um, kind of supplement matrix for um, connective tissue injuries? Um, we've, I have read some of the stuff on collagen, um, but not, I'm definitely not an expert or that familiar with it. So I'd be curious to hear, hear your knowledge on the area. So it's like, it's an emerging like research. So like when I did my presentation on ACL injuries, there's some research on it. And in some sports nutrition departments, it's standard practice for those who have a connective tissue injury, like ACL. So vitamin C is important in our body to help synthesize collagen. So AKA like an injury to that area. So the idea is that if you supplement with collagen, so a lot of people use just like gelatin or a collagen plus vitamin C, that it actually might help with that recovery process for that connective tissue injury. So taking like, you know, orange juice shots is something that a lot of people use at those environments, sometimes even preventatively too, for those types of injuries. So sports with a high risk ACL, like think football, basketball, soccer, those with a lot of like, you know, jumping quick twist movements, they might actually take those like shots, um, preventatively. Hmm. That's interesting. I, when I was, um, on the Packers medical staff and, and I know it's still very common amongst most pro sports team that we would do a lot of vitamin D um, mm-hmm. testing and then supplementation for athletes that were, that were low because of some ties to muscle strain, um, uh, mm-hmm. potential, you know, issues there, but I had not heard the vitamin C with collagen. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I don't even know what we have not researched about vitamin D and its effect on athletic performance, yeah. like Bones. bone, muscle, immunity, everybody, in my opinion, probably everyone needs to take a vitamin D supplement unless proven otherwise. Yeah. It's interesting sometimes too, because we did like some, some of the research has looked at, we thought it would be very like parts of the country based, you know, people that were like out in the sun might not need it quite as much, but um, there was no rhyme or reason where people lived or, or whatnot that seemed to make a difference on whether they were vitamin D deficient or not. So um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think people also don't realize like vitamin D is actually really hard to get from food. It's only found in like fatty fish, dairy, egg yolks, mushrooms. So it's like not found in food that a lot of us eat all the time or every day. And dairy, it's not, it's fortified in dairy. So it's not even like naturally occurring. So, so you got to work if you want to try and eat enough vitamin D. Yeah, it's definitely easier to just take the, uh, might be one that's worth taking the supplement for after mm-hmm. you eat all the rest of your um yeah. balanced diet first so all right well that i think that i learned a ton about that so that was uh that was awesome um, yeah. another common question that we get on um, kind of these specific topics is 
like timing of fueling around um, training or competition mm -hmm. with athletes that don't want to feel weighted down so that they don't want to eat too close to the game and what should they eat after what um, kind of guidance. And I, I know it's going to be individual, but generally speaking, what, what type of guidance can you give to uh, our listeners? So I'll kind of split this. So for practice in general, the guidelines are if you're eating within an hour before your practice, make sure it's a snack that's high in simple carbs, which is the type of carb that's really quickly digested for energy and won't sit in your stomach. And that it's low in fat and fiber, which are two nutrients that kind of sit in your gut and empty slower. So it could lead to some upset stomach. So if athlete come be like, all right, I'm going to go get a Chipotle burrito bowl within two hours before practice. I'm like, well, no wonder you probably feel so bad because there's probably a lot of fat, a lot of fiber. It's going to make you feel slower. And then after practice, the goal is, you know, restore your energy stores with carbs and help your muscles repair with protein. So when someone tells me like, yeah, I totally recover after practice, I put a scoop of protein powder in water. It's like, okay, well, we got the protein, but where are the carbs? Like that's not going to refill your energy stores and you got a tournament in eight hours. Yeah. And then so far, yeah. And then for competition, just the number one rule, no new foods. So comp, it is not the day to break out. So if you're going to run a marathon and you haven't been training with gels or goos your entire time, the day of the marathon is not the day to break out your fancy new gel and be like, I'm going to fuel with these. Cause if you haven't trained with it, you have no idea how your gut's going to react to that. That's a uh, very, very good advice. Not, not a test day. It's a competition day. Try it during, during practice. Yes, definitely. Um, what are some, you kind of said simple cars before practice or games. Like what are some, um, I, I know it'll be person dependent, but what would be some examples of like common things that you've had athletes try that might need yeah. help with the pre-workouts? So I'd say my favorite, I like pretzels because I mean, they're easy to crunch on and they also have some salt. So you get a bit of electrolyte, um, applesauce pouches are another favorite, um, fruit snacks, um, bananas. I mean, they're dried fruit. There's so many different ones without having to resort to sport products. But if you like sport products, you could do like the gel or the goo or the chews. I know people like those. You could sip on some sports drink like Gatorade. I also like to try and tell athletes, like get some electrolyte beverage in before you exercise too. So then you're kind of pre-hydrating before you do the workout. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. And always easy, nice to have like easy things that are portable like that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so do you have the other problem that we see a lot with high school and college players? I, it seems like, I don't know, high school starts way earlier than, than I remember. I did grow up in Texas, but We've got kids that are in school at like 7 a.m., 7.15. Um, they go all the way through, busy. They go right from school to practice. So just eating timing-wise and being able to pack enough snacks or whatever the case may be. So do you have some tips for athletes that are really busy and kind of have a hard time just getting enough nutrients in because of their schedule? Yeah. So, so thinking kind of for high school. So first, like talk to your teachers or your professors about eating in class, if that's an option for you. So a lot of my kids are like, I don't know, like, I don't know if I'm allowed to like eat my snacks. So make sure you can try and get some, get some permission for that. And then another thing, like your nutrition doesn't have to be fancy. So a lot of people come in, they think, oh, I need to have this perfect structured breakfast acai bowl. Like that's my favorite, the acai bowl, fancy, like smoothie bowl. 
But I was like, no, if you literally did take one of those Kodiak cups that microwaves in 80 seconds and grab a banana and grab a yogurt smoothie and run out the door in five minutes, that's just as good as if you had a full breakfast. And then again, it doesn't have to be fancy. If you literally just make 20 PB&J sandwiches is one that I've heard another dietitian recommend. If, you, if that's what you need to do and like make that and just put them in your bag and eat them throughout the week, then that's totally valid. So like think simple, don't overcomplicate it. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Um, you know, and I don't know why I understand it. I've always been a breakfast person. It's my it's my meal. I don't I will get up as early as I need to to be able to make <laughs> breakfast and sit down. I do some reading and I it's just it's a part of my day and it's been that way since I was as long as I can remember. But um, we just see a lot of athletes that skip breakfast. And when you start pressing them on it, it's like, well, I just don't have time or I don't want to get up early. And so I think finding things like that, that it can be fast, it can be portable. You don't have to sit down and eat it, um, but you do have to, you have to get it in some way. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, I was like that. I was an all state track and field runner and I didn't eat breakfast in high school. And now look at me. I'm a, I'm a dietitian. So I know like I've been there rolling out of bed 20 minutes before school starts to make the 15 minute drive to my high school. But your first, like your gut can be trained. So if your gut gets used to not getting food in the morning, of course, it's going to be hard to try and even eat anything. So over time, just gradually increasing the food that you have and your gut and your hunger cues are going to follow. So it's like, just like your body, your gut can be trained. Yeah. That's good advice. Well, I have learned a lot today. Um, so this has been great. Um, could you kind of walk our listeners through what, what is working? If no one's worked with a dietitian before, what does working with a dietitian look like? Dang. So that. That's something that depends on who you are, but in general, like your dietitian will kind of ask you about your health and performance goals and then take a thorough health and nutrition history. So your like, you know, medical history, your height and weight, your like, are you taking medication supplements? What's your training like? How are you currently eating? Do you have any special dietary needs? And then we kind of take all of that and put it together in a package and help you form a nutrition plan in order for you to compete. But it's not just about, you know, a plan or telling you and educating you things. It's about building a relationship and helping you to have a healthy relationship with food. So like if I have, if I had an athlete who had the perfect diet down to the gram of every macronutrient, but they were too scared to touch a dessert to celebrate after their tournament, I failed the dietitian, in my opinion. If I of an athlete who like, you know, might do super well, but they don't ever want to try a new food or try a new vegetable. Like I feel like I failed as a dietitian. It's my job to help you embrace all foods to fuel your performance as well as to fuel you for life after sport as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think it's a resource that not enough, I think it's becoming more and more common. We're seeing more and more people do it, but it's, it's, I mean, I've seen a trend in youth sports in particular where kids are getting more structured strength and conditioning plan. They're not just going to the high school gym and grabbing some weights and doing bicep curls with their buddies. They're, you know, investing <laughs> in their training and things like that. And, um, I think that sports nutrition is starting to go that route as well, where more people are gradually recognizing, um, you know, previously it was always just like athletes with 
um, kind of eating issues with eating disorders, with low energy levels, with, or with, um, you know, specific body composition goals. They were the only ones that got referred to work with nutritionists, but I think there's such, it's such a low hanging fruit as a performance enhancer without any other, um, like medical need per se. And I think that I'm starting to see that trend now where, where people are embracing it as part of that performance enhancement, um, like holistic strategy. Yeah. It's, it's so funny that you say that. Cause I was at the gym the other night watching these two 12 year olds with no supervision saying, I'm going to deadlift 300 pounds. And I was like, Oh buddy, somebody's going to get hurt. But yeah, more and more kids are, and parents are signing up for training with the strength coach. But Sadly, a lot of them are still getting majority of their nutrition education from the strength coach or from somebody who's not a trained dietitian. So I'm, in my ideal world, every high school, like they have an athletic trainer assigned to them, would also have a dietitian assigned to them. So it's my goal to hopefully increase that education at the high school, collegiate level, amateur sports, and bring nutrition help for everyone. Yeah, I think that's a uh, that's a great goal. So uh, along with that goal, um, do you have anything new and exciting coming up? And can you share a little bit more about where people might be able to find information about you and, and how to work with you online? Yeah. So I, so my company is Midwest Performance Nutrition, and I'm technically based out of Kenosha, but I see people virtually. So I see people all over Wisconsin. I'm also licensed in Illinois, but I could also do nutrition coaching with various different athletes. Um, so I provide individual group nutrition coaching. I do team talks. And next year, um, in the next month or two, my goal is to launch a nutrition course for a cross country and track and field. So I'm hoping to, I'm working on a four module course about fueling for that specific sport. Because again, that's my wheelhouse. That's what like I grew up in. That's what I'm an expert in. But I'm hoping to kind of get that launched and hopefully see teams around the country being able to use that if they don't have the funds to shell out for an individual dietitian, they can at least have access to that course. That's awesome. Very, very exciting. Um, I will include your website in the show notes. And then you're also active on um, social media. What's your uh, handle again? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at, at energy sports dietitian. Perfect. And I will also make sure we get that in the show notes. So I really, really appreciate your, uh, re your time today. This is, I love doing these podcasts, especially when I can learn something. And, uh, I learned a lot in talking to you today. So I'm sure that the people that listen to this are going to learn a lot as well. And, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I love talking about what I do. That's uh, I can I can tell how passionate you are, which is uh, always really exciting to to work with somebody that's that's uh, passionate as well. So thanks again, Abby. And thank you to everyone for listening. And we'll see you guys on the next episode. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.